my name is Emily Fredriksson, and you're listening to Wild Research Bites, brought to you by the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. Today's guests are Jöran Eriksson, professor and head of this department, Wildlife, Fish and Environmental Studies. Welcome. Thank you. And I also have researcher Vibke Neumann. Neumann? Neumann. Neumann, sorry. Yeah. So I invited you both here to talk about moose, uh, the king of the forest, but I would first want you to explain a bit to me what you're working with. So maybe, Jöran, you want to start? Okay, besides being head of the department... Yes, which takes a lot of time, I guess. (laughs) Uh, I work with all aspects of human-animal interaction, and moose is one important piece of that interaction. But historically, that interaction has also been interaction with landscape. And in the Swedish landscape, plants are important. So plants, animals, and humans are my task when it comes to research. Cool. A lot of... It's very broad. Broad. Yes, interesting. Okay, Vibke, what? Uh, my interest uh, uh, in uh, the interaction between humans and wildlife. So uh, I, lot, I work currently, I work quite a lot with uh, movement data, looking how animals uh, utilize the landscape and where we can have uh, areas or times of conflict. And then I look also at land use aspects mm-hmm. and conflicts of different land uses. Mm. So it's a bit, yeah, uh, overlapping, I guess. I've seen a lot of your papers together, so I'm very new to this moose subject. I'm bringing it in, bringing it into my thesis now, so I'm very eager to learn more. And it was really fun to see this slow TV project that really took off here in Sweden. I don't know, maybe it's not really anywhere else than in Sweden, but yeah, it was made by the Swedish National Television. And it was called um, like the big moose migration, if I would freely translate it. So, and you were a, like a, a what do you say? Not a professor, what a, like a expert. I was invited. an expert in the broadcasted, yes, yeah, traditional TV cast as well. So, hmm. so yeah, they had uh, like remote cameras in the forest with uh, and drones to f- capture this moose migration in Ongeman Elven. And um, it was during three weeks, and they had, I found this number of 4.6 million streamed hours online, which I thought was very impressive. So would you tell me more about your experience in this, year? Yeah, basically, the setting is that uh, it's a migration that's been going on since the Ice Age, basically the last eight or 9,000 years, probably. Something's been going on here. And uh, the place they selected here was one of the places where they cross one of the major rivers. Okay, so it's sort of spectacular in that sense that they swim and cross rivers. So, and animals do that all over the world, in Africa, in North America, in Russia, other parts of the world as well. Their migration between summer and and, and winter ranges. Mm, so it's where there there's food, where there's pasture, or is yeah. it also if. Quite many of the animals doesn't live in a stable climate. There's a heterogeneity between summer, winter, drought, and, and rain periods and things like that. So quite often animals migrate because they're trying to do the best of a bad situation. Lack of food, lack of shelter, lack of water sometimes. And in the Nordic landscape, of course, it connects a lot to the <coughs> very heterogeneous landscape where it's cold during winter, no access to food and summer. Abundant food, 24-7 hour, no uh, sunset. So things like that drives migration. Mm. 
and that's what uh, drives migration, do you think, for the moose here, the winter harsh climate? or Yeah, they're trying to do the best uh, combination of food and climate. Because mm. uh, you have to remember that the clines in, in weather differs between south and north, but also from low and high. Yes. Yeah. I see. Now, I, I had no idea that they migrated at all. I mean, I think talk a lot about reindeer migration, um, at least when I studied and, yeah, but not about moose migration. So I was a bit surprised when I heard this and also that they, I mean, why wouldn't they be able to swim? But still, <laughs> they're very big animals. So it was really cool to see. They're extremely good swimmers. They're equipped for swimming. Yeah. So I was thinking about why do you think this was so popular among the Swedes, this watching the moose migrate and the birds and this slow TV concept? I think it turned out to be an addiction. First of all, people rarely saw a moose. They were watching the oncoming spring, okay, from mm. winter with ice and snow and the daily melt and the turnover of the landscape, the greening started, spring birds came, other mammals beavers otters reindeers showed up in the cameras and suddenly there was a moose for a while and then it was <laughs> gone and i think also it brought nature into people's living rooms or the offices or to whatever they were following this 24 7 moose migration program so it was very slow no music just natural sounds hmm. it was very peaceful to watch mm -hmm. did you watch it Wibke? shortly shortly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard a lot of people here in the offices having it on, like their their screen while they were working with the birds and everything. That's really fun. My mom also was very addicted to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. It's like an addiction, I would say. Um. Yeah, I hope they will do it more. It's a really cool project. Um, but then, I mean, why would you study moose? I mean, there's a there's, there's a huge question, I guess, but I don't know. Um, why, why do we do it? Do you think Vibke hands over the <laughs> talking <laughs> stick? <laughs> why do you do it? <laughs> That's one of the major game in Sweden, so it's quite important. Producing a lot of meat and uh, producing also some damages. So um, and so there has to be a balance. Um, so for large parts of Sweden, it's a major game basically in northern Sweden. Mm. And in the south, it comes other wildlife species like uh, white boar becoming more and more important, for yeah. example. Yeah, we have a lot uh, other ungulates coming in now, too, in south of Sweden. Yes, exactly. Mm. So and uh, so here at the department, we have a program beyond moose studying interactions and just to adjust the management tools better to mm. these multi-species or multi-angular species systems. Because currently most management is focused on moose. Hmm. Or all tools developed are for moose. So. Yeah, we have most tradition in doing that, I guess. Uh, <coughs> or why would you say that is? Yeah, traditionally it, it has been the most important species. And I'm not so updated when it started in the south that the other species became more... Uh, more in numbers and so on, but uh, that's some a decade ago, maybe or two. 
It's, I mean, it's, white it's, boys it's, it's, quite recently, but it's increasing quite. Yeah, but it's steep, it's so. various reasons. They they are important <coughs> in this society. It's been the last nine thousand years. They provide the, a lot of meat, of course. Historically, people were adjusting to moose and reindeer migrations, of course. Uh, but if you look back, like to the early 1800s, most of the countries, Western countries or North European or North Americans, they started to to shingle out was was the most symbolic animals for conservation. And for Sweden, it was brown bears and moose. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, for the U.S., it might have been bison in parts, and, and in Europe, raw deer in parts, red deer in parts. So, quite often the modern era of conservation started that we focused on the most symbolic animal for that culture. Mm. In the Nordic culture, moose turned out to be very symbolic in that sense. Uh, and that has also been then opening door for more of the conservation and research issues for other species. Okay, Of mm. course, we have more species that have been at risk. But the first conservation movement generally has been towards the animals of, of symbol in the countries. So for us it was moose and bears. Moose in the early 1800s, bears in the mid-1800s. And that has shaped our view of sustainable use of nature quite much in the Nordic countries. Because mm-hmm. I don't really think about moose when I think about conservation because, I mean, they are very uh, managed and we have, uh, and they are not like... <coughs> Too few of them. I mean, it's not like we need not to. Now, not, not now. Not now, but, no. but they have been recently, yeah. uh, also mm. like hundred years ago. Okay. So each each country have those stories. They are rather parallel. Not the same species, but it's often a large mammal uh, that one been focused the early conservation efforts towards, and it's also been in uh, joint effort with reforestation quite a lot. Okay. So a lot of the sustainability thinking that came in the late 1800s and early 1900s focused on bringing resources back. The environment was already devastated at that time. Mm. No forests were lit green, basically no mammals around. And then they focused on what they at that time thought was the most important species. Turned out quite often to be the big mammals. Mm. Yeah. Well, they are very impressive animals. They are, yeah. Yeah. I think um, a lot of people think about, when they think about moose, maybe who are not researchers, uh, think about uh, road accidents, for example. Um, and I know you worked a bit with this. Vipke. Yeah. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> I, you ran earlier and got some, some fresh, super fresh numbers for us. Um, yeah, we, um, I mean, the number of moose accidents in Sweden, it's not the highest number. Come Rodi as much as seven times higher mm-hmm. uh, the number of accidents with Rodi, but because moose is such a huge animal and especially it has these long legs, which makes if you hit it, then there's a high chance that the heavy body is falling into the window from you, and uh, that makes an accident with a moose quite serious. So, um, relatively to the number of accidents, you have a high risk of severe damages, and it's often the head and the neck. So there, um, you have a high ri- higher risk to die and also or to be sitting in a wheelchair afterwards. So that makes the accident with the moose a bit more of yeah. a business so compared to roadie or white bull, mm. where you have more damages with the car. Mm. Yeah. So. 
that makes sense. So uh, on average, uh, if you if if we look at the numbers from 2010 until 2018, on average there are 5,800 accidents with the moose per year. Yeah, per year. Mm -hmm. So, but there's a variation between years. So it can be lower, below 5,000 in one year and above six or even 7,000 in another year, depending on, yeah, yeah. different reasons. <laughs> and uh, But on average, it's about like 5,800 and yeah, rhodius seven times more mm. each year. Rhodius uh, stands for 75% of all ungulate accidents. Mm. But there is a lot more of them in actual numbers as well. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So it's really a magnitude more. Mm. <laughs> so. I see. Well, is there any like <coughs> south-north gradient um, in the country? Um, I mean, Rodia is of course more in the south because yes. it's uh, the distribution is more in the south. And uh, regarding the number of accidents. I don't know. Right. I, I have not looked at that, but mm. I would suppose so. I think. I mean, there's, uh, there's more probably more moose in, in the north, <laughs> but it's more traffic in the south, and yeah. you need a car on the road to have an accident yes. as well. <laughs> so you have an also a variation uh, over the day and over the year when an accident is most likely to happen mm. because it has to be when the activity of us humans uh, coincident with the activity of the animal. Mm. So and they're most active in like. Um, Twilight. Twilight, uh, yeah. So, And that changes over the year. Here. Yeah. So, so, so we can, in the north, we can see a peak uh, in fall, winter, in the afternoon. Mm. Because then sunset and sunrise, uh, sunset is um, yeah, coincidence when we are working, uh, coming home from work, basically. Mm. Yeah, the moose schedule uh, really co what is it? collides <laughs> <laughs> with ours. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what happens is that one fool ourselves to sometimes drive faster during summer nights. So even though there are not so many accidents this time of the year, they're quite severe because people tend to, for some reason, speed a little bit more when it's light. So even if they coincide a lot with twilight, but this time of the year, moose are 24-7 active. They're active basically the, year, the, the 24 hours. That's... Uh, ongoing, which means that of course there could be a risk to hit the moose in some other time. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's good driving conditions in it general could, in summer, yeah. so people drive faster. <laughs> so basically, uh, the take-home message is more accidents in winter and fall, but more risky in summer, mm. so that you have higher risk of damages, mm. person damages. Yeah, I see. But there's also, I, I thought about the next activity, I guess, <coughs> people connect with moose is hunting then. Yeah. And there's also in fall, I guess, during the hunting season, there's accidents too. But but yeah, we we affect moose a lot with the hunting and the management. Yeah. Uh, me and Jöran, we looked actually at that, if the hunting activity increases the risk of moose being on the road. Mm, and yeah. we couldn't see that. So... It's not it like we're driving them out to the road. No. Uh, what we could see is that there's a change in uh, movement behavior with the um, rut, the breeding season of the mm -hmm. moose, which is uh, overlapping partly the hunting season. But in the southern 
Sweden it's before the hunting season starts so we can see a, an increase in uh, activity and uh, likelihood to cross the road mm. and in the north it's more yeah in some areas in the north have a hunting break so it's often in that and uh, so they're more active like looking for mates yeah I guess. exactly ranging around and uh, so but it's not the hunting activity itself who's leading to more activity moves mm. But then it could be that there are more people in the forest driving so that you have actually more cars in the mm. forest, increasing the risk of having an accident. <laughs> so. I guess it's always hard uh, trying to entangle these, what is mm. affecting what. But here it was rather easy with good data to disentangle, mm. to show that it's what not hunting on the population level, it was that the breeding took place at the same time. And the reason we could disentangle this was the difference in onset, as you said, we of hunting in the south versus north, okay? Mm. Because the breeding season is roughly the same, a little bit of adjustment, of course. So that was something we didn't think, but it was a, it was a nice outcome for that. Yeah. And it's weird, I mean, we work a lot with uh, GPS, GPS data, which is basically uh, the animal, in this case, a moose has a neck collar, and with the GPS, and it calculates the position according to the schedule we have programmed. And that uh, makes it possible to um, get information how the animal is moving day around the entire week, Sunday, Saturday, and even from areas where it's not so easy to go for humans. So it's really amazing data we have uh, yeah, over the whole year, all seasons. And then we can uh, look at how animals are responding to different aspects. And that is really... This technology is really a, a push forward to understand the behavior and the ecology of an animal. Mm, it was really cool. And this um, national television show, when you can follow, was it three different mm. um, moose that they named? Uh, it was really cool to see this, the, the lines on the map they make from the GPS. Mm. It was, yeah, it was cool to see. I was shocked the first time I walked here in the corridor at the department and it was this huge box with things in it and I was like what is this they were they were so big like and it was the colors with this uh, box underneath but they were they were so massive <laughs> it's like but yeah, yeah but they're just big. Uh, <laughs> one percent of or one half percent of the half body percent, weight of yeah. a yeah. yeah how much a quarter to a half percent depending yeah. On, yeah, I would say yeah. it's the, what you see is the box is the battery okay mm. <clears throat> uh, an elephant has a bigger one yeah, and the road has yeah, a smaller one. Yeah, so so um, yeah, it makes it's sense. always uh, species specific. Yeah. Yeah. Also, how the form of the neck color is that because it should mm. not affect the animal. Mm. Some are more round and some are more um, oval. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But so, what did you do before this new technology? When <laughs> yeah, it was uh, VHF, so you were standing and um, paling. Oh, with this um, basically what people do yeah. when they have a hunting dog and look where the hunting dog is mm, also. so they have this little uh, stick thing yeah. you mass mm. they hold <laughs> but that makes that you can uh, first of all you get not as accurate positions and you get much less because you have to take three to get one position mm -hmm. three three angulations and then and you have to actively be in the field I guess yeah, yeah. you have to drive more so it's more environmentally friendly to have GPS colored animals. But you, then you get data continuously, right? You don't need to be out in and the field or how does it work? 
Uh, I'm hardly out in the field. I'm just sitting in front of the computer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's less disturbing, but open up more possibilities. You, in a way, you can use fewer animals, but get more data. Mm. Yeah. But you can also attach other sensors to look at stress, mm-hmm. heat stress, how stress affects heart rate, uh, blood pressure, other things, stomach temperature, things like that. So you can use those colors to actually get or out more data from an animal you want to study for a specific, well, interest of the society, hmm. for example. And a lot of projects we are involved in is looking at the impact of humans on animals. So that's why GPS technology and sensors are so important for us. Yeah, yeah and it's not just the impact, it's also the base baseline understanding. Because, I mean, we have hardly physio- physiological data from white animals, often captive animals. So these new technology allows tracking animals in the real environment hmm. and looking how they adjust their body temperature to different seasons or can you see when they give birth in the temperature and so on. Mm-hmm. So it's not just impact, no, it's, it's also a um, basic understanding basically about the physiology of the animal. Important to understand if you get a warmer climate. Yes. Yeah. For example, how animals will be affected over a warmer climate. Yeah, I was thinking about this. Was it this winter? I'm not sure. When there were so many moose climbing to the horse um, pens in the winter, trying to eat. It was this winter, right? No, yeah, it was last winter. Yeah, last winter. Yeah. It, was, it was because of the snow? I no, I wouldn't say. It's becoming more popular to actually <laughs> feed horses. And long-lived animals like moose, they do learn. Mm. So you learn that it's good to go into to the <laughs> pen of, of a horse and eat of that food instead of going, of going and browse on a twig. Oh, okay. yeah, so it's, and it's so typical that animals learn by following the others. Okay. Mm. So we call it frequency-dependent learning in a way. Ah, so one does it and it works and the yeah, other... So you can see that over many taxes, birds, small, big animals. But the, the key here is to be long-lived because then you can accumulate a lot of good experiences, then you repeat the good experiences. Mm. Hopefully also transfer them to your yeah, uh, children. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so maybe not the so maybe not uh, depending on the climate change, this behavior. No, I wouldn't say <laughs> that. So it's probably due to to the ability of learning. Mm. Okay. But then what do we know what um, a warmer climate would do to moose? I mean, moose is really well adapted to cold climate, so we expect that moose will get some trouble because it's such a huge body who can uh, is well insulated, so they hardly lose any heat. So if you uh, touch the fur of a moose, it's relatively cold. And then if you go with your fingers in the fur, you can feel that the body heat, but it's very well insulated, so they do not lose so much heat, which and they cannot really sweat. So that means that they get really problems just by slightly higher temperatures. There's a study uh, on captive animals, but um, where they looked, and then it was minus five degrees in winter when the moose started to show signal on heat stress. Minus five? Yeah, and oh. on in summer, plus 14. Around 14, yeah. Oh. So, uh, it, I mean, 14, that's not a summer for us. You don't no. want to have 14 degrees no. in summer. You want to have it warmer. <laughs> we often warmer. have them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, so, 
so thinking about that uh, many salmons maybe are much warmer than the animal has to adjust and they do that by going to a different habitat for mm. example which may not necessarily be good for foraging mm. so they hide in like shade or <coughs> yeah mm. so denser forest maybe maybe also change the activity pattern mm. could be also in the more active during colder times mm. of the day. I see. So they have to change their <coughs> behavior basically to, uh, yeah, adapt to the temperature. If it goes fast, the, the, the problem or benefits with evolution is, is time, of yes. course. If something happens fast, you have to have a lot of genetic variation, a lot of different sub-families in, in your genera. But if it goes slow... The animals tend to adapt. Uh, in a moose case, you probably be the one to survive and pass your genes on if you have a fur that's less warm, probably. But at some point, of course, they can't adjust. But given the, the rate of change, uh, right now it seems to go a little bit too fast in the south. But we don't know that yet. But the last 10, 15 years we've been working south in Sweden, we see that in extreme places like the island of Öland, then they're affected of the not the heat stress per se, but in combination with the early arrival of spring, that the spring now arrives 10 to 14 days earlier. Mm. But of course, a few moves still adapt to that. They give birth earlier, but you have to have an impact on the whole population to see that change. So it's the rate of warming that's important for animals to adapt. Mm. But the projection is, of course, if this goes on, we will see moose migrate north in the sense that the southern perimeter where moose actually are found in Sweden will not be in Scania close to Denmark. It might be in west of Stockholm instead. Mm, yeah, because now we have moose in all of Sweden. Except basically. the island of Gotland. Except Gotland. Yeah. Okay. Although they're but good swimmers, they haven't swam that yet. So. <laughs> but still all the way to yeah. Skåne. Yeah. yeah, because, I mean, it's it seems to be going very fast for, for a lot of species, climate mm. change right now, and moose doesn't have, I mean... The shorter your like, um, what is it called? Um, your life span, expectancy, yeah, your life uh -huh, span, the yeah. faster you can usually adapt. But speaking in contrast to that is that moose is making a strong comeback in the continental Europe right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Poland, the Czech Republic, a few other countries, they're mm. returning. They came even to Germany. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So there is a <laughs> population of moose in Germany right now. Oh, but why? Ah, not really a population. <laughs> they are a single individual that's crossing the border from Poland to yeah, Germany. Yeah. But still. <laughs> so. But why do we think that's happening then? It might be that uh, pred predation might be more important in the, in the stage we're at right now. Okay. Oh, yeah. And the protection also increases chance of survival. So mm. normally the, the fastest... The fastest thing that affects the population is the risk of mortality, okay? Uh, climate change is a subtle thing that operates on a long time scale. But if you increase the ch chance of immediate survival, the species like moose, roe deer, fallow deer, wild boar, they will expand fast because they can actually produce quite a few offspring per mm. year. Yeah. So the key is survival, in a sense. Yeah, it sounds very... Reasonable, yeah. And I guess we manage a lot of the big predators heavily in Europe, as here, I assume. And also, we now have 
better control of hunting in some of the countries. Sweden mm. has also had good control of hunting. So the combination of predation, control of hunting and refugee has also produced the possibility for animals to expand. But the four most important things probably in Europe that we are reforestating Europe again, forests are coming back mm. in terms of biomass. Okay, they're reclaiming former habitat, forests are increasing, understories increasing. So if you go to countries like Italy, France, parts of Germany, forests are climbing the Alps again and there is mm -hmm. not like an open landscape anymore in several places. Uh, agricultural land is being more and more abandoned, small-scale farming is gone. Um, with the growing, fast uh, growing of trees and shrubs in the Mediterranean and South Mediterranean Europe, you actually see an impact of forests coming back. Mm. I was thinking if it's like active uh, restoration of forest lands or if it's more uh, these yeah, changing to very big agriculture instead of small, could be parts of everything, I guess. I think it's both Germany. It's a good example of active reforestation still. No, but um, I mean, uh, in the Eastern Europe, it's more abundant, I would say. So it's a oh, combination. Mm. Then it's maybe important that climate change is not only negatively. I mean, that uh, comes with a prolonged vegetation period as well so yes that's true which will be a longer period for for more food availability i guess yeah. for moose but it can also come with a different distribution of species which can change the interactions yeah. interspecific interspecific interactions mm, i mean between species yes yeah <coughs> yeah uh, it's complicated i always it's such a um, yeah, climate change and all these things. There's so many variables and so many species, and it differs in countries. And it's yeah. The important thing is rate of change, of course. Humans are in in impacting rate of change, for sure. But the world or the animals that we have in the current world has been formed by climate change over the times. But yes. now we're impacting them with rate of change. Mm. Yeah, we're making it a lot faster. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's basically the end of my questions. But I thought maybe if you can think about like the, the coolest fact or something fun that you know about moose. Can you think of anything right now? <laughs> no, they do snore when they, they get snore. old. Yeah, they do snore when they <laughs> sleep, actually, when they get old. How do you know? Yeah, how do you mm. know? <laughs> We're working with old moose for a while. When you no. tend to sneak up to them, they they <laughs> snore and they have the same problems uh, like we humans will get when we get old. Mm -hmm. Okay, impaired hearing, bad sight, <laughs> snoring, mm. and hard to stand up fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cute! A gray-haired moose snoring. <laughs> I don't know if it's something specifically for moose, but I really, I'm really fascinated to see how they go and utilize the landscape and find the easiest way and they use it year. They make the same road trip year after year. Hmm. So I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, especially in the north where you have the valleys in the mountains that they really go through the valleys. Mm. So that was... Yeah, they have a beautiful scenery to yeah. do their road trip on. <laughs> yeah, and the... And also the fact that they are good swimmers, I think, is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I think I that really was like that. the the fun fact that I took with me from this 
the TV yeah. show that, and this moose on these islands. It was also very cool to see that they swim between islands with different purposes. Yeah, and they, yeah, yeah that was really up in the upper Ramdakalix mm-hmm. archipelago that you could see that they really utilize the different islands and swim around. Yeah. So was very and, cool. I, and the funny thing is that they don't do that really in the south. I mean, they mm, never swim. Them. We have no of the GPS marked moose we had on Ireland. None was swimming to the mainland. Mm. Well, in spite of that, it's just a few kilometers. Mm, because in the like north, they swim that distance between small islands. So. Even kilometers. Yeah, they, don't, they can swim. There is documentation of that they are swimming to islands they don't see. So they must oh. smell the island. Mm. And so they have a good smell yeah. and a good hearing mm. when they're young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, super so. cool. Yeah, I would really also uh, like to thank Joran for making this podcast a reality. Uh, it's very fun to do. It's fun to have you here too. And thank you also, Vibke, for coming. Thank you. Thank I will you. It was my pleasure. Um, leave l- relevant links and your contact information and everything below the episode. But otherwise, um, yeah, thank you and bye. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome.